Amen. So good to worship the Lord with you this morning. As we get ready for this morning's message, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we just come before you this morning, and it's good to worship you. Heavenly Father, you are incredibly faithful. Your goodness uh, just continues to pursue us, Father, and we give you praise and glory this morning for who you are. Father, we thank you for a Savior in Jesus Christ that you love us that much, that you wouldn't let us sit in our sin and die in our sin, but yet we turn our lives over to you and we get forgiveness of of life, Father, forgiveness of sin, Father. We, We thank you for that new life, that we would run in that new life. I pray, Father, for the Holy Spirit to be alive and active and sharpening us through your word, Father. Father, thank you for this body of Christ that loves well. Uh, on each other and cares for one another. And Father, may we continue to be a light on a hill for the name of Jesus Christ in this community. May May the gospel be going forward in this community, in this world, in this nation, Lord. We repent. We need more of you and less of us. And Father, we cry out to a very good God that loves us like crazy. May we understand your love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and pull them out. We're going to be in Judges today, Judges chapters 8, 9, and a little bit of 10 as well today, kind of wrapping up Gideon. We've been in Gideon the last two weeks, and we'll see Abimelech today as well. Uh, I don't know about you if you've had some bad experiences before, but one of the worst experiences I've ever had is taking a big swig of milk that you just realize has gone bad. Okay, anyone there with me? Anyone? Okay, it's like, you know, before even the taste hits your mouth, it's those lumps and clumps, right? You know, and it's one of the scariest moments in your life when you walk up to the fridge and you see the milk's just a couple days past due, right? And it's due date and you're like, well, you know what? I think, you know, milk's expensive. I don't want to get rid of it. So you kind of smell it and you're like, it's still kind of borderline. And, and then you have to do the drink test and you drink it and you're like, oh, it's bad, you know, and it kind of hits you pretty strong. Maybe some of you parents can recognize, maybe there's, you know, you found like a sippy cup underneath the van, uh, seat and you're like, how old is this? And you take a sip and it's not very recent that that's been there. So, hey, you know what we're going to look at today um, is someone, a good leader, Gideon, who turns sour, okay? He, he, he's not become like really per se an evil man. He just spoils, okay? And it ruins his ministry, his kids, and, and, and the whole, we're going to see that whole process today. And so you're going to see the effect of this souring of Gideon over three generations of judges. So we're going to kind of break this down. I'm going to look at Gideon, uh, Judges chapter 8 with Gideon. We're going to kind of wrap that up. And then we'll look at Abimelech and then the last uh, two judges as well. So Gideon, where we left him last week, was on a really big high, okay? Gideon had just pulled off the most incredible upset in military history. With only 300 soldiers, he had taken out and defeated a massive Midianite army that probably estimates say would have had around 100,000 men, okay? And then he takes them out with not even losing one person in casualty, okay? So pretty amazing. So you picture this scene, what happens after a good victory? Hopefully this afternoon we'll see people, right, shaking champagne bottles and they hoist people on their shoulders, a good kick or a quarterback that throws a winning touchdown, whatever it is. But that's not what takes place. 
As often with good victories, what happens is he goes back and the people start backbiting. They start complaining and bickering with each other. So the next chapter actually opens with Gideon in conflict with two clusters of Israelites. Okay, so the first cluster is this uh, Ephraim. It's a community, it's a large, wealthy tribe in Israel, okay, who seems to also have had their pride hurt because they, de- they got left out of the battle. And so they're kind of reaming Gideon over, why didn't you call on us to be used and to lead in the battle? So that's the first group of conflict. The second group of conflict is smaller townships. There's one called Succoth and Penuel, okay? And they refuse to really, you know, get involved because they don't really take Gideon seriously. So both communities, both have kind of the same offense towards the war, but it's striking and kind of interesting how Gideon deals with the two of them, okay? So the large one, the wealthy one, Ephraim, Gideon responds with flattery. He kind of uses uh, special words, kind of woos them back with his words to good standing. The other smaller town, Succoth and Penuel, he actually treats them very harsh, um, and uh, the, the community of Succoth, he actually goes to the leaders and he says, he pulls them all together and he puts them in, in a briar patch and he beats them, okay? Then the other community, you think that's bad, he goes to Penuel and he actually wipes out the village. He just literally kills the inhabitants. So his response to these two groups is very inconsistent. And it seems like it's more based upon what is best for Gideon than really what's what God wants in the situation. And so Gideon, you know, why he responded this way, probably because Gideon probably needed the first tribe. The first group was kind of a a group that was wealthy. They were actually too large for him to defeat. So he just says, I'm going to woo them back and flatter them back so they're in good standing. The other two communities were small. He didn't think they were worth much. And so he just literally wiped them out. And that's what he does. Maybe the bigger point in all of this is that in neither case, he actually consults God, saying, God, what do you want here? And he simply, you know, does what he thinks is best based upon the power that he has here. So what you're seeing is something is happening in Gideon's heart, okay? And he's fresh off this victory over the Midianites, and he's already forgotten whose battle it was, and his heart has turned inward, and it started to go sour, okay? So he used to say, this would have been what we closed with one of the last points of last week, was success is joining Jesus wherever he is. Well, now he's saying success is doing whatever I want. That's kind of how he's changed in his heart. So if you have chapter 8, verse 22, is where we're going to start to dig in here. This is what it says. The men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, and you and your sons and your grandsons also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But, in verse 23, but Gideon said to him, I will not rule over you, and my sons will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And that was actually a great response on Gideon's part, okay? Because God told Israel, hey, you don't need a king. I'm going to be your king, okay? So, so far, so good. Gideon's doing good. But then jump down just a few verses, Let's see just a few verses, verse 30. Let's see where Gideon's life is at now. It says, Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. Now, 70 sons, 
this would have been pretty king-like to have this many, like this large of a wife pool would have been mostly for kings. So he's kind of acting like a king there. Verse 31, and he says, and his concubine who was with, who was in Shechem also bore him a son and he was called his name Abimelech. Okay. Now the name Abimelech in Hebrew actually translates to my dad is the king. Okay. So it seems like he's kind of acting like the king. It sounds like Gideon's kind of making himself the king. Go back a couple of verses now. Go back to verse 24 here. And it says this, And Gideon said to them, Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. So now what is he doing? All the spoils and the stuff that they're taking in, he's taking a little cut of it. He's taking taxes. And, and that's what a king would have done, right? Verse 27, and Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. What's an ephod? An ephod is a vest that would have been worn by the high priest in the presence of God when he went in to request of God on behalf of the people, okay? And the ephod, according to God's instruction, was to only be worn by the tribe of Levi, and only at the tabernacle. So Gideon is creating his own version of this. He may not be trying to deny God, but he's definitely trying to put himself in the place of God and also take on himself the privileges that God has for himself. So now he's starting to direct people's attention actually away from God. So what has happened to Gideon? Gideon experienced incredible victory and that evidently gave him a taste of glory. People started to say, wow, Gideon, you're amazing. He liked the worship, and that leads him to blasphemy, and he becomes now a curse to Israel. Instead of delivering the people of God, who he taught to have faith in God, now he's becoming a stumbling block. That's what he's become to them, and he's leading them, actually almost distracting them away from God. And so that can be dangerous for any leader in any position, when we start to see ourselves be pulled away from God, you see Gideon had something in Gideon that we've actually never seen before. It's, I've tried to point this out in all the messages. The people of God always wandered away from the Lord after the judge was dead. But the people here are falling away from God while the judge is still reigning. Okay, and so we see how this now that's going to lead to generations of Gideon's uh, f uh, family following, uh, falling away from the Lord. And so I want to real quickly give you a couple indicators. You might want to write these down. They're real quick, but they're indicators that life has now become more about what you want than what God has want. And we see this in Gideon. The first one, real quickly, is infrequent prayer. Okay, Gideon was desperate for God. When he was desperate for God, he prayed out to God instinctively. It just flowed from him. And a lot of type A followers of Christ like to make prayer kind of a checklist. We kind of know it's a discipline. I should pray, and, and that's good. We, we absolutely should pray. But his prayer was usually out of desperation. 
And it was just involuntary. It was like breathing. It's just what he did. He just prayed all the time. And now his prayer life has gotten much more infrequent. And when things got more difficult and when hardship came in more, it's just like breathing. You breathe even faster and deeper and longer. And that's what he would have done. It prayed more often. But it's, he's not really seeking the Lord through prayer. Another reason that maybe you've kind of, you know, started to make it about you is that there's a failure to talk to others and consult others about their wisdom. So he's not asking God and he's not really asking other people. And I've got to tell you, I've seen this time and time again about leaders that build themselves up. It can be incredibly dangerous when they try to become an island. And everybody's way below them, right? And you're the only opinion that really matters. And you surround your people, but you surround yourself by people that are just kind of yes people that kind of say yes, whatever you want, whatever you want, instead of real accountability. There's no humility left to say, oh, maybe I need to learn something here. And he really isn't consulting God, not consulting others. And the third one is this, is resentment. Resentment is when when, when life is all about you, you actually start to resent those people that get in your way. You become incredibly harsh and cruel to everybody else that is of no value to you. But if somebody, you might be nice to someone that could still, you know, help you with finances or give you some power or something like that, but we become very resentful and harsh. And that's an attribute that we see playing out in Gideon. The fourth one is we become just full of materialism, you know? There's just excess everywhere. Gideon takes people's money and he makes a suit of clothes for himself made out of gold, okay? And I'm not saying that we have to all suffer. God loves to bless his children. It's okay to enjoy some really nice things. But the thing is, you get to a place when it's always gotta be newer and bigger and shinier. That's a place of danger because there's no contentment there that God wants for us. And the last one is sometimes we constantly worry about our name because our name is everything. Our reputation is what we've built our lives upon. So when you're elevating yourself, you're trying to elevate your name and then then you can't handle any criticism. Somebody says something about you and you just wanna jump on them, but you don't wanna listen to them because you need constant affirmation and constant praise from others. So those are some danger signs that maybe it's become less about what the Lord wants and more about what I want. And that can be very dangerous. I said to you last week that Christians most often, we pass the, the trial and the test of adversity. That's what we pass. But when it comes to the test of kind of prosperity, that's the one we often fail. And so I'm just telling you, be very aware of your strengths and be very aware in seasons of prosperity that maybe I'm starting to fall or drift away from the Lord and we don't want to sour. Just a a quick passage to help you get this. Proverbs 30, verse 8 and 9, it says this. The writer says, Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of the Lord. So that's a place of danger when we we really have too much or too little. We really want, Lord, just give me enough for today. Let me be satisfied in you. And Gideon had accomplished so much in ministry. And then we just see his heart start to spoil. 
and he loses that relationship with God and loses his joy, and, and then we see that affect his family. So that's kind of the end of Gideon. We're going to go to verse chapter 9, if you have your Bibles, and we're going to look at Abimelech. Abimelech, the tumbleweed. Okay? Here's what happens. After Gideon's death, kind of summarizing some of this for you to help you get it. After Gideon's death, Abimelech, remember he's the one that says, you know, my, my dad's the king, that's his name translated to, says, you know what, I want to be the king, except without his name, I want my name to be there. And so he gets this group of thugs, okay, together, and they go out and they kill and ambush 69 of Gideon's other uh, brothers, okay, is the other sons of Gideon, his uh, Abimelech's brothers, they kill them all, okay, except for one named Jotham, who is hiding in a closet, okay, and escapes death because of that. Then Abimelech goes to the, to the leader and says, well, I guess there's nobody else, so I guess I'm going to be the, the, the king here because there's no one else left. And the leaders absolutely knew what was going on, and they still put him into leadership, and they crowned him at Shechem, which was another offense. So there's horrible things going on. First of all, God said, you don't need a king. I'm your king. So now they have a king. Uh, and then he says, you know what? You're going to put into place this guy that's a brother murdering scoundrel, and you're going to put him into leadership. That's what they did. And then thirdly, they did it at Shechem. And that would have been a place uh, of high honor, kind of the, the holy place for, for Jews. It was the birthplace of their nation where God gave Abraham the, the promise and then he also renewed it with Joshua. So this was incredibly painful. Well, remember the one guy who escaped. He was hiding in the closet. He comes out of the closet, okay? And he says, you know what? He goes in front of the leaders of the Israel. And he says, you know what? I've got, I want you to know, I've got a vision that I want to share with you. And he says, it's about a bunch of trees, okay, who decide they want to choose a king for them. So this is what happens. You guys can read this. Okay, read this on your own time. I want to encourage you. They go first, they go to the olive tree, and the olive tree, they say, will you be our king? The olive tree says, are you kidding? I got all this, you know, amazing olive production happening. I am getting loaded off it. I don't want to bother, you know, with being your king. I'm not going to be your king. So they go to the fig tree, and they say, man, have you tasted these cookies that we make? They're amazing. They're selling out everywhere. So these fig trees are, you know, these fig newtons are taken off. And he says, no, I don't want to bother with being your king. And eventually they go to everyone else. That nobody wanted to be the king. Nobody wanted the burden of being the king in this vision. And he says, okay, you know what? I'm going to go to this tumbleweed. And he goes to the tumbleweed and says, will you be our king? And the tumbleweed says, Sure. I'll be your king, but first you have to burn down all the other trees. And so they do. And then Jotham says to the leaders at Shechem, this is what you've done. This is what you've done. And now in this parable, there are some criticisms. Clearly, he, Gideon had some sons that had some great leadership abilities and they didn't get involved because they were so content and they didn't want to use their, their power and their resources to serve the people of God. And, and there's, you know, something obviously there for us that we, you know, they didn't have a very good example in Gideon. But the main critique here is of the people that appointed, the leaders that appointed him to be the leader. They appointed this horrible, selfish politician promoting himself. And Jotham says this, he says, this is going to come back on you. Well, sure enough, that's what happens. 
Abimelech turns out to be a horrible king, a terrible leader, okay? And there's no surprise there, but Judges 9 kind of records all of the sabotage, mass murder, you know, during Abimelech's reign. So here's what happens. Keep tracking with me just for a few moments. Eventually, all of those leaders that appointed him see how horrible the leader he is, and they say, you know what? Abimelech signs his army to now go attack those leaders because they've turned on him. And so those leaders then flee. They run and they go into this tower, the, the city tower, and that would have been the last place of refuge. That's the one place everybody runs. Nobody can attack us there. We're going to be safe in here. And pretty ironically, this is what he does. He takes a bunch of tumbleweeds and he puts them around the tower, and he packs the base full of them, and he lights them on fire, and over a thousand people get burned alive. Horrible, yes. Abimelech, then what does he do? He moves on to the next city, and that's where he drives all the people into their tower, and he's just about to light it on fire when all of a sudden, sudden there's a woman on the top floor, and she takes this moderately-sized millstone which in those days was another kitchen appliance, right, that you would have used to grind flour on. And she leans it out the window. It falls and drops on Abimelech's head, and it doesn't quite kill him, okay? But it stuns him very well. He's just kind of barely conscious, and he's all mangled. And he says to one of his servants, quickly, kill me with your sword so I won't go down as yet another guy that got killed by a woman with a kitchen utensil, okay? Remember the frying pan a couple weeks ago, okay? He's like, quick, take me out. I don't want to be, you know, unrecorded on that. And so the servant does and he dies. Whew, some stories we've been having these last couple weeks, right? So there it is. I want to share with you chapter 9, verse 56 and 57. See this, it says, thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers upon his head. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their head. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbabel. So what can we learn for us in this generation? The first thing I want you to see, if you want to take just a couple quick notes, is I want you to see God's judgment. It may be slow, and it may be sometimes very subtle, but it's still always there. It's sure. It's something we can absolutely count on. God's name in chapters 8 and 9 are very absent. His name is just very rarely used. But yet the narrator shows us in just those two verses I read for you, in 56 and 57, that God has been at work the whole time. He's just, even his invisible hand is working, and in all things, his plan is working, and he's using even these sinful men as instruments. They don't even understand that they're being used, and it may for a while seem like evil is prevailing, and that's what it seemed like, but don't mistake that, that we think that God is then absent. He's not, and in the end, I want you to know, uh, he will have the last word, and he will have perfect ju justice served. For every one of us. And God's purposes will be fully accomplished. Okay? That's something you need to know. Because a few weeks ago, I told you that sometimes we don't always in our lifetime see all these wrongs be righted. But these stories like this in the Bible assure us that one day all those wrongs will be righted. 
And, and they, so they warn us of not taking the slowness of God's judgment and turning it into complacency, where we think, God, if you're not around, I'm just going to act. I'm going to work for you. I'm going to step ahead of you. That's very dangerous. The apostle uh, Peter kind of said, hey, be careful that we don't mistake God's patience for his absence. And we need to be careful with that. Noah, did you know when, when God told him that there's going to be a flood, start building, and when the flood actually came, there was a hundred years, okay? And some had said, oh, well, that's a long space. God's failing to act. No, that's his season that he gave space for those to repent. And so friends, don't think that this delay in Christ coming, that he's not coming. He is coming back. Absolutely, friend. So don't intend what he intends to be space as God's absence. And some of you say, oh, you know, we've all known friends like this before that say, I'll put it off till tomorrow. You know, tomorrow will be just like today. Well, friend, I got to tell you, I've been brokenhearted over this earthquake in Turkey, 24,000. So friends, you don't know what tomorrow looks like. So friend, if you feel like God is moving in your heart, respond to him today. So absolutely, it, it, his, it may be slow. It may not look like it's there at times, but it's sure and it's always. The second thing I want you to see is that the problem a lot of times we think is out there. That's what Israel said. Oh, who's, it's, the problem is with those people attacking. But the problem is really in here. That's the problem. This story is the first one in Judges that actually shows us the actual oppression comes not from another area, another group, another tribe. It comes from within them. It's one of their very own. It's one of their greatest leaders, the son of their greatest leaders that would be their oppressor. And so it's finally made clear what we've been referencing all along the way, that it's really been their problem, their heart problem. Now it's been made abundantly clear it's their heart problem. And I want you to notice that there is no special outpouring of judgment in this story. There's no fire or lightning that just gets rained down upon them. It's truly just God allowed them to experience the result of their own sinful choices. I mean, look at this. Gideon, in his self-centeredness, in his hunger for more glory, you know, produced a son who murders his brothers to be king. And then, you know, Shechem is disregarded, you know, for God's commands. That's, you know, they kind of recognize that they're just doing things for their own self-interest. Abimelech, you know, he was, you know, full of like backstabbing and that led to his own downfall. So it's just really the results of their own sinful choices. The final point I want to give you this morning is that it points to us, we need a new king. A better judge is what we need. And that's what we have in Jesus Christ. Like the Israelites, we come to God thinking, you know what? I need my situation better, right? Lord, I, I need you to deliver me from some pain, some brokenness, and some relationships, some lack of money. That's what we think. And we may need those things. I'm, I'm not saying we don't. But what we need most is freedom from our own heart, okay? And, and that's what the, where, where our sin is. And our friend, I pray that that would be true, that we would recognize we need a Savior in Jesus Christ. Because, I mean, if we did it, if we had everything, that we think we'd be much better. I mean, if we really had all the money we dreamed about, you know what? There's some people that are incredibly wealthy that have used it for incredible sin. 
And if you think we're going to be, if I could just be really, really educated, there have been some incredibly educated people that have led some horrible, horrible things in our country. And then, you know, what if we, you know, had a better government? Do you think a really a better government's really going to solve, you know, and bring goodness out of the people? We need heart change. And your heart needs to be changed. And we have a Savior that wants to deliver us from this curse of sin, and that's Jesus Christ. Jesus is the opposite of everyone we see here. Gideon, Abimelech, absolutely. He is our true king, and we, we need to seek him in all our ways, not just a better marriage or more resources. We need a savior, and that's what we, we've been given in Jesus Christ. The final thing I want you to see is the conclusion. There's two more judges real quickly. I know we're going to wrap up, but there's Tola and Jer. And real quickly, in chapter 10, verse 1 through 3, I'm going to read. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, and son of Dodo. Those are some fun names. And he lived at Shemur in the hill country of Ephraim, and he judged Israel for 23 years. Then he died. Verse 3, and after him arose Jair, the Gilead, who judged Israel 22 years. Two things I want you to notice there. First of all, all along the way, they've been telling us whom, when a judge is given, you've been told whom they deliver you from. We're no longer told who Tola and Jer are delivering Israel from because it becomes increasingly irrelevant. Israel recognizes their heart is the problem. The second thing I want you to notice from this account is that it says nothing about the people of Israel crying out for salvation. All along the way, every t example, they've been crying out for God, and we don't see that anymore. So one of the things I want you to know we, we are confronted with in this book is that time and time again, God is the one pursuing his people, okay? Even when it doesn't feel like, you know, he's there, he's on your side, he's the one pursuing you. He seeks us when we're lost, he died for us while we were yet still sinners. And when we're broken, when we're wandering, he is the one pursuing us, according to Romans 5.8. And that's what I've pointed out throughout Gideon's uh, kind of these sermons. First thing, they cried out to God, and they got a sermon, changed their heart. Before they could even respond, they were given Gideon, this you know, fearful warrior. And so God has been working all along the way. Here's what I want you to see. Some of you may know the show The Voice. Anyone watch The Voice? It's a, you don't have to, but it's a, it's a song where people sing. They think they're going to be the next music star, okay? What happens is they're singing in front of four big, you know, time music stars. But the stars are turned around. And so the people sing as, you know, as best they can. And the only thing the judges are listening for is their voice. And not what they look like or how they perform. But if they like what they hear, they, turn, they hit a button and they turn around, okay? And they say, I want you on my team. Well, friend, what happens here, it's like before, for you and I, before we even sing a note, God has hit that button and he turns around. He says, I want you. I want you on my team. And I hope you grasp that. I got to tell you, I don't know if today you feel like you're a leader, you've been following the Lord. Is your heart starting to go sour? Look at those airy to cling back to prayer. I need to soak myself in you. I need to surround myself by wise counsel. Friend, don't mistake the patience of God with his absence. He is coming back. So turn to him today. And I want you finally to say, the Lord, hear that the Lord says, I want you. That's what he's calling out to you today. Would you pray with me?
Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, and we thank you for these stories and these examples. And Lord, I just pray. I pray for a, a broken spirit on, our, on, on behalf of, Lord, what you're doing in our lives. I pray, Father, that we would um, understand, Lord, if we're starting to sour, Lord, we want to finish well. We want to be running with the Lord. We want to be seeking your word, growing in your word and growing in the Holy Spirit. Lord, come alive in us. Lord, we receive you. And, and Father, come into our life. We trust you with our, our, our lives, Lord. So, Lord, we surrender to you today. And, Lord, we, we just pray that we would understand your love for us today and how deeply when, when you're hitting that button, you're saying, I want you. May we understand what that means to be wanted by the, the, the God of creation, the God that made a way, that sent his son to the cross and defeated the grave for us because you love us. Help us to walk with you faithfully and not sour in our leadership, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Have a blessed week.